Our economy now seems to be in parts of it are in survival mode, parts of it are in YOLO mode. <laughs> right? So the the parts that are in YOLO mode, I think, are younger people. They've seen everything over the last 20 years. They watch their parents listen to their financial advisor and load up on stocks like IBM. Couldn't, you know, General Electric at once, one point was the largest, most powerful company in the world. You know, they did everything right, and those stocks are down 70%, 80%. They watched the housing market implode. They just want to get paid a lot of money and spend it. <laughs> so you do have areas like the airlines love it, particularly with this hybrid work week when everyone tells their boss they're working on Friday, but they're really, they just landed in Aruba. But, but the other parts of the economy, a larger part of the economy, is really now starting to be in this sort of survival mode because all the major economic indicators are turning lower. So we've got a sort of a bifurcated economy, but it's unlike 2007 before that crash, you know, buy a house, flip it. It was there was definitely less caution. We threw caution to the wind 2006, 2007. It was party every day, have fun, flip a house, make money. It was party time. From the Fox News Podcast Network, Fox News Rewind. Financial crisis 08. Good evening. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. I understand their worry and their frustration. We've seen triple-digit swings in the stock market. Major financial institutions have teetered on the edge of collapse, and some have failed. As uncertainty has grown, many banks have restricted lending. Credit markets have frozen. And families and businesses have found it harder to borrow money. We are in the midst of a serious financial crisis. 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 Lehman crumbled under $60 billion in bad real estate debt. Bear Stearns had a liquidity crisis. My administration is proposing a single-family affordable housing credit. We are here today to repeal Glass-Steagall because we have learned that government is not the answer. Our leaders and their old ideas have failed us. The true problems of our nation are much deeper. The time has come for a new economic policy for the United States. These policies are meeting with some measure of success. Total production of goods and services in our country has increased 8% over last year. The bitter truth is that the world is not at peace. Episode 1, Bulls and Bears. The 1920s were a go-go decade for stock investors. Everyone was making money. Host of Your World on the Fox News Channel and Cavuto, coast to coast on the Fox Business Network. Neil Cavuto. In fact, they were making money hand over fist. And, uh, you know, it was the old period, the Herbert Hoover period, you know, where uh, two cars in every garage and chickens in every pot and, and, and you could do no wrong. What we learn on the upside as we do with the downside, is you can overdo it on both sides. There was extensive consumer spending, a lot of building. Host of the Clayman Countdown on Fox Business, Liz Clayman. You look at when some of the most over-the-top buildings in Manhattan went up. It was in early 1929. We are about to officially open the Empire State Building. 
the largest and most beautiful office building in the world. There was a bit of a, um, a tech boom. Um, there was a lot of innovation that was going on during that time period. Former member of the Federal Reserve Board of Directors, Randall Krosner. Electrification that allowed for uh, the kinds of tools that people now use where you just plug them in. Everything used to be centralized before that. Now with uh, electricity, you could just plug things in. So there's a lot of innovation there. Radio was something new. That was um, uh, really quite quite an innovation. And they were getting close to coming up with, with television also. So a lot of, um, a lot of technical innovation and a lot of uncertainty around the valuations of, of that. So you see, everybody was spending a lot of money, employment, people were getting jobs, and then people got excited by stocks. Too excited. In the 1920s, people weren't paying attention to the underlying fundamentals. When good and bad companies are both racing up, it's one thing for a good company that has good earnings prospects, that has a good sound business plan, up to advance, that's deserving and should happen. It's quite another when a company that barely has a shingle out is all of a sudden doing the same thing based on no sound investment principles. The 1920s, that was happening on steroids. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange and market prices. A lot of people kind of marked the beginning of the Great Depression with the stock market crash of 1929, Black Monday. Senior writer at the Wall Street Journal, John Hilsenrath. If you look at what, what actually was underneath the depression, it wasn't so much stock prices falling as it was banks, banks collapsing. So during the Great Depression, more than 10,000 American banks collapsed. Now, the United States had had financial crises that led to recessions in the past. In the 1800s, we used to have these kind of boom-bust cycles that affected the banking system. And you would see, you know, maybe 100 banks collapse across the nation in 1907 was, was, was one example of one of these banking panics. Well, the Great Depression, it was magnitudes of order greater than that. All bubbles have the same genetics. And one piece of that DNA is that you have people desperate to make a lot of money quickly. In fact, there's there's a quote from Lord Overstone, no warning can save people determined to grow suddenly rich. I personally have been buying stocks since the crash set in on Tuesday. And I have been urging everybody else who can do so to buy without going into debt. This is something you hear a lot in, in you know, financial history that it gets to be a casino. It, it gets to be like a, a, a gamble, and it's like gambling. Every time America has had a panic in the past, it has paid people to buy stocks in the midst of the excitement. I am absolutely confident that stocks purchased during this panic, and we've had a panic, make no mistake about that, will also yield very generous profits. Now is the time to buy. I hope you have plenty of the wherewithal to wade in and buy. There were two remarkable things about the Depression. Uh, the first one was how deep it was. And the second one was how long it lasted. Uh, so just for some perspective, um, the unemployment rate during the COVID crisis got over 14%. 
for a month. And it was a devastating experience. Uh, During the Great Depression, it got over 15%. And then it got even higher. It went to 20%. And it stayed in double-digit levels for almost a decade. Imagine living through what we lived through during COVID for an entire decade. And that's what American households and American families lived through during the Great Depression. Federal banking regulators sort of never take a look at these shadow unregulated systems. Vice Chair of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Des Moines, Linda Killinger. There's also continued a lack of oversight by the government agencies. And that really encourages everybody to um, really leverage up and take out more loans so they can take part in this exciting new deregulated industry. So you also see um, uh, debt, not only for, for businesses and for consumers, go up substantially. Right before the 1929 crash, 90% of all of the consumer goods that were sold in the country in the 1920s were sold on credit. So it really encourages people to leverage up and take advantage of all these new products. They created the Federal Reserve in 1913. And, you know, we think of the Fed today as this kind of institution that is in charge of, like, making sure there's not a recession or fighting against inflation and messing up on inflation or unemployment. But really, the the reason the Fed was created was to stop bank runs. Uh, And the biggest mistakes the Fed made in the Great Depression was failing to stop bank runs. I wish I could tell you that the markets which your fathers and grandfathers once enjoyed were again open, fully open, to receive more of your wheat, your pork, your lard, your tobacco, your cotton, and your fruit. I can tell you this, that we have done many things which have helped the situation. Imagine this. One day you have $5,000 in your bank account. You go to the bank the next day, and it's gone. The bank's doors are shuttered. Bank workers are standing outside saying, what happened to my job, let alone your money? And you realize... There has been nothing like this before, and it is horrifying. And that's what was so bad about the Great Depression. People starved. They jumped off tops of buildings. They committed suicide because they had no other way out. The government wasn't ready for it. They didn't know how to help until, of course, they got their footing and realized we've got to start with regulation and we've got to start with soup kitchens. It was a terrible time in this country. Very painful. This social security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens who will reap direct benefits through unemployment compensation, through old age pensions, and through increased services for the protection of children and the prevention of ill health. Americans became afraid to put their money in banks. All these banks were failing. Tens of thousands of banks failed. And, um, you know, there was the saying, you know, which people literally did put your money under the mattress. Uh, So one of the things that they did uh, during the Great Depression was uh, they they created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp. So the idea of the FDIC was that if, if you have deposits in a bank, the government is going to insure those deposits. So the bank is going to give you your money back. Uh because the government is kind of standing behind it. And if, you know, the government, run, if I'm sorry, if the bank runs out of money, then the government will say, all right, we'll come in behind you and we'll pay all the depositors. And the reason they did this is that you would have these bank runs. So 
and there are these pictures from the Great Depression, or if you ever saw the movie uh, It's a Wonderful Life, you see an example of a bank run where people get scared that they're not going to be able to get their money out. Uh, they, they line up at the bank and they all say, give me my money now to try to stop bank runs that created the FDIC. You know, markets are, are always an element of risk. But what happens in, in, in the case and what happened after the great crash of 1929 and the ensuing depression is regulators had to step back in to police that. Uh, they, they came up with something called the Glass-Steagall Act in, in 1933, which was uh, an effort to sort of rein in this devil-may-care uh, behavior. Don't let your eyes glaze over when you hear things like the Glass-Steagall Act. This was one of the most important post-depression acts that was put into place. And basically, it separated commercial banking from investment banking. Remember, commercial banks, people walked in and tried to get their money out, and they couldn't because the investment banking side had taken too many risks. So it separated those two sides, put up this great, gigantic wall, and also created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, which, as we know, insures bank accounts up to $250,000. I believe, actually, that it didn't have to be a Great Depression. It would have been a short-term uh, recession. Economist and Fox News contributor Steve Moore. You know, we'd suffered many recessions before in American history, and, and then the economy would recover and get back on its way. The federal government started spending very aggressively during World War II to, to ramp up our military arsenal, uh, starting out by selling weapons to, to Europe, to, to the British, and then ultimately getting into the fight ourselves. But in spite of all that we have done to help preserve and restore peace in the world, the bitter truth is that the world is not at peace. Guns are thundering on the battlefields of Europe and Asia. December 7th, 1941. No American will ever forget this Sunday morning in Hawaii. Hawaii's bright Sunday becomes a black Sunday. The number of our officers and men killed in the attack on Pearl Harbor was 2,340. And the number wounded was 946. Of all of the combatant ships based on Pearl Harbor, battleships, heavy cruisers, light cruisers, aircraft carriers, destroyers, and submarines, only three were permanently put out of commission. The U.S. economy was able to get out of the Great Depression by massively mobilizing the American people uh, and American industry to building weapons to defeat the uh, evil Nazi and Japanese powers. What the government did is it borrowed money and then it spent it uh, on uh, on tanks and airplanes and bullets. And all of that spending really um, kind of restarted the economy, which had been in these doldrums for many years. Presenting the underwater explosion of the atomic bomb with the radioactive wave overwhelming the ship. Once the war ended in 45, 46, there's a lot of concern that we would slip back into that. Fortunately, we, we did not. Um, the U.S. economy made the transition after uh, a few uh, bumpy, uh, bumpy quarters and a little bit of uh, immediate inflation because there had been uh, price controls and so prices had to, to uh, re-equilibrate. But uh, the, uh, the economy then came back. There was a lot of investment. Um, there was the GI Bill, and so a lot of the uh, GIs 
went and uh, got education. And so that's investment in, in people, which is just as important as investment in physical plant and equipment. And that kind of led the basis for the, uh, the post-war boom. Economic conditions in the country are good. There are 61 million people on the job. Wages, farm incomes, and business profits are at high levels. Total production of goods and services in our country has increased 8% over last year, about twice the normal rate of growth. Perhaps the most amazing thing about our economic progress is the way we are increasing our basic capacity to produce. For example, we are now in the second year of a three-year program which will double our output of aluminum, increase our electric power supply by 40%, and increase our steel-making capacity by 15%. We can then produce 120 million tons of steel a year, as much as all the rest of the world put together. The beauty of post-World War II America was that during the war, men went off to fight it, women began working, they took the place of men. So you suddenly had this brand new, huge employment pool so after the war, women realized, wait a minute, just because my husband's back and he's taking back his job, I still really feel important and I enjoy working. So you had a brand new labor pool. You had bigger demand post-World War II when it came to brand new technologies and all kinds of other industries. So post-World War II, it was the, the wonderful days, certainly. You had a lot of growth at that time, and it was legitimate growth. We had this industrial powerhouse that was created around the war machine. And after the war, we were cranking out refrigerators and cars and all kinds of manufactured goods. And the middle class grew around that. Uh, that not only was helping to produce that stuff, but was consuming it. So the economy did really well, despite the fact that there was a lot of volatility. And interestingly, as our industrial might grew, the productivity of American workers improved too. And that's an important ingredient to, to improve prosperity because if workers are more productive, that means that companies can do two things at the same time. They can make higher profits and pay their workers more money. Presiding at his 131st Washington, D.C. news conference, President Eisenhower, in a good-natured question-and-answer exchange, says the way to recover economic health is to buy intelligently. Oh, I, I don't say you should buy carelessly. I, I said to you the other day, let's be uh, selective in our buying. Let's take things we need. Well, look here. Once America just buys the thing it wants, the, our people, our manufacturers will be busy making those things. I personally think our people are just being a little bit disenchanted about a few items that have been chucked down their throats and they're getting tired of them. And I think it'll be a very good thing when manufacturers wake up, and I'm not going to name names, but begin to give the things we want instead of they th the things they think we do. So in a lot of ways, even though there was a lot of volatility, it was kind of good times for America, kind of all the way up until the 60s, and then things got a little nuts again. I believe that the anticipated profit this year for industry in general, and steel in particular, indicates that these policies are meeting with some measure of success. And it is a fact that the last quarter of last year, and I think the first quarter of this year, will be the highest profits in the history of this country. And uh, the highest uh, number of people working, and uh, uh, the uh, highest uh, productivity. So that while there are serious economic problems facing uh, us, nevertheless, uh, I believe that the progress 
is being made and can be made and must be made in the future. So the economic situation during the 1960s uh, was very different at the beginning of the decade than at the end of the decade. Um, at the beginning of the decade, um, there was uh, a lot of uh, a lot of optimism about um, what uh, what the economy could do and could bring. Um, a lot of people were still sort of uh, building families from coming back from uh, from World War II. Uh, the growth of the uh, growth of the suburbs, um, and gradually, what happened during the the 60s is that. Um, uh, there was a little bit more economic dis disruption. In particular, inflation started to uh, to move up uh, during the uh, the late 1960s. This is really when, um, in, at least in the post-war period, uh, we the U.S. experienced its first um, moderate to high inflation. It was in the late 1960s, early 1970s, uh, that ultimately led to things like. Uh, wage and price controls in the early 1970s. Prosperity without war requires action on three fronts. We must create more and better jobs. We must stop the rise in the cost of living. We must protect the dollar from the attacks of international money speculators. We are going to take that action, not timidly, not half-heartedly, and not in piecemeal fashion. We are going to move forward to the new prosperity without war as befits a great people, all together and along a broad front. The time has come for a new economic policy for the United States. Its targets are unemployment, inflation, and international speculation. In the 1970s, uh, there were a succession of policy mistakes. Once again, the Federal Reserve was in the middle of them. This time, instead of keeping rate interest rates too high as it did in the Great Depression, it kept them too low. And uh, there was a lot of borrowing, a lot of spending by American households and businesses, and that led to inflation. Uh, there were also shocks that hit the economy. Uh, there was an oil price shock when OPEC, uh, oil producing nations in the Middle East, for instance, embargoed sending oil to the United States and we had shortages. And then there were other mistakes like uh, price controls that were made in Washington. So the 70s were not a good decade uh, for the American economy or for Wall Street. It was a, kind of a flatline decade for Wall Street. It got to the point where inflation was con consistently running above uh, 10%, uh, which was um, unacceptable and unsustainable. The government has been spending too great a portion of what our nation produces. During my campaign, I promised to cut the government share of our total national spending from 23% which it was then, to 21% in fiscal year 1981. We now plan to meet that goal one year earlier. Reducing the deficit will require difficult and unpleasant decisions. We must face a time of national austerity. Hard choices are necessary if we want to avoid consequences that are even worse. I intend to make those hard choices. Jimmy Carter presidency is often characterized by one word, malaise. Um, people um, kept talking about how we were having stagflation, we weren't really making a lot of, uh, a lot of economic progress, and um, inflation came down a little bit at the beginning, but then started going back up. Um, you had the Iran hostage crisis, so there were sort of 
questions about um, about the uh, uh, about the the strength of the U.S. in the uh, in the uh, in the world. Um, there was also a, another energy crisis uh, where Jimmy Carter famously uh, appeared on television wearing a, a cardigan, telling people that uh, they should uh, turn down their thermostats and allow it to be a little bit colder this uh, this winter. It's clear that the true problems of our nation are much deeper, deeper than gasoline lines or energy shortages, deeper even than inflation or recession. And I realize more than ever that as president, I need your help. In many respects, what we saw in the late 70s and leading into the early 80s was uh, massive inflation. Former CEO of Washington Mutual. Kerry Killinger leads investors to reassess what valuation should be, and the, you go into a period where you have not only inflation but very low growth. Uh, we called it stagflation, and uh, and then it just takes a while to work your way out of it. It's not my intention to do away with government. It is rather to make it work, work with us, not over us, to stand by our side not ride on our back. Well, the 80s were go-go times. I would say going back to Ronald Reagan when he came into office in 1981, keep in mind we were in the midst of a major recession. We had stagflation. Uh, And and there was a sense that things were out of control. Uh, Working with Ronald Reagan coming into office, we had a central bank chief, the Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker, who was trying to deal with inflation, double-digit inflation. We had a prime rate at close to 22% back then. Uh, And he was raising interest rates, oftentimes one full point at a time to try to, you know, get that inflation under control. Uh, He managed to do that and inflation did come down. Ronald Reagan had simultaneously, when he came into office, uh, started cutting taxes. Uh, That combination was powerful between inflation getting beaten down and taxes coming way down, it led to an economic boom, the likes of which really have not been imitated since. It is my intention to curb the size and influence of the federal establishment and to demand recognition of the distinction between the powers granted to the federal government and those reserved to the states or to the people. So certainly the 1980s were a turbulent time for, uh, for Wall Street. Um, there was uh, a lot of volatility. We had the, um, uh, the stock market crash in, in 1987. And, um, and so a lot of innovation going on. And whenever there's a lot of innovation, there's a lot of good that comes from that, but also a lot of uncertainty and volatility that, uh, that can come from that. And then they got involved with junk bonds, uh, which were the new fancy product of the day. Again, not really watched or regulated. There's nothing wrong with junk bonds per se. But when none of the regulators are taking a look at it, it really grows out of proportion. And that's so you've got another shadow unregulated system of SNLs in some of the states that really uh, were responsible for most of the problems in the, the 1980s uh, SNL crisis. And so we had the, uh, the stock market um uh, stock market break or the, uh, the, uh, or the very significant decline in 1987. But fortunately, that did not lead to a banking crisis. It didn't lead to a credit crisis because the banking system had much more capital, had much more liquidity, and there was also deposit insurance. 
And so unlike in the 1920s, when you had a big downturn in the stock market and that created some jitters that then led to concerns about banks and then runs on banks, you didn't have that. 1992 is in the books for Wall Street and the big winner on the market floor, mutual fund money managers. Last month, investors pumped a record $9.9 billion into stock funds. And since January, they put more than $68 billion into funds, twice as much as last year. One of the compelling, most compelling reasons for people to go into funds is stick a shock on what they're getting on their CDs and their passbooks from the bank. Interest is too low. They have to make up for it elsewhere. Funds are professionally managed. At the same time, consumers are also charging their way into the new year. This Christmas, credit card purchases rose at a record rate. Visa saw its business rise 17% this month, while MasterCard's business climbed 23%. I started covering business news in 1998, mid-1998, and I'm opened to this whole world of craziness, the dot-com boom. And I'm thinking, this is really early, and it's exciting, but I was interviewing college graduates who were worth $90 million on paper because they had created a website that sold hair barrettes. I'm not kidding. Theglobe.com. And these guys were smart, certainly. But I kept thinking, why is this the most successful IPO in history? Why is this happening? And what did I know? I had been a general assignment news reporter covering drug busts and explosions and chocolate festivals. Okay, so to me, it was all a brand new world. And I just began looking at it and studying it and thinking, wow, these people are making a lot of money simply by slapping a dot and a C-O-M at the name of legitimate businesses, some of which had no internet theory and no internet value at that point. But... Everybody was making a lot of money. eBay is shelling out one and a half billion bucks for PayPal, a popular system used by web surfers to pay their bills. Most of PayPal's business comes from eBay's users. The deal joins two of the most successful survivors in the dot-com arena. Once again, you start to see the froth, the excess, and the outrageous spending, and everybody thinks it's always going to last forever. And guess what? It never does. Economists say they've never seen anything like this market before. In the old days, in this case five years ago, companies had to make money to go public. Not anymore. The result, according to new research by Barron's, may be the not-so-pleasant popping sound of the Internet bubble for some startups later this year. In this sector, you're going to see this sort of Darwinian winnowing go on. And that is serious for several individual companies. Barron's analyzed more than 200 internet companies to ID their burn rate based on fourth quarter figures. They looked at how much these companies are making revenue-wise versus their spending. More than three quarters of them were losing money and it indicated to us that over the course of this year several dozen more, even several score more, would run out of money. The 1990s led to it's kind of new era of experimentation with securitizing loans, taking loans, putting them together into one big package. Uh, some of the loans pay off, some of them don't. But the net flow of all the cash that comes out of these loans is expected to be positive and investors are willing to take a chance and invest on that on the idea that they'll be able to get a good return on it. Under Bill Clinton, we had something called the Community Reinvestment Act. And I, I think it was a significant development because I think Bill Clinton's heart was in the right place. He wanted to expand home ownership. 
But I think the mistake that was made, and it wasn't specifically his fault as much as there was great pressure on Washington to make home ownership not a goal, but almost a birthright. And they wanted to expand it to even riskier borrowers with a little more than a promise and an IOU. People who probably shouldn't have gotten those mortgages got them. Uh, and it set the stage for people who were over leveraging themselves. Now, when, when you know, musical chairs are still going and you hear the music and everyone is having a great time, it's fine. But the, the slightest inkling of trouble when, when that, that music ends, not everyone's going to find their seat. Next time on Fox News Rewind, financial crisis, 08. I continue to believe uh, we're, we're going to continue to grow. And so I'm, I'm optimistic about that. Mortgage originators and the banks who provided them with the credit all reaped profit from the increased economic activity. What we had with Bear Stearns was one of the first examples of a modern run on the American financial system. You have to participate, but never, ever 100% trust Wall Street. 